0: Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and one of the most formative political experiences in my life was my participation in the Free South Africa movement in the 1980s. As a young college student watching on television as thousands of determined and joyful Black folks ran through the streets singing and chanting for democracy, I felt quite compelled to do what I could here in the US to support the struggle there and became a very big activist around the Free South Africa Movement at that time. And of course, the iconic figure of that struggle was Nelson Mandela. And I remember getting up. A- early in the morning of February 11th, 1990, to watch the coverage as Mandela was released from prison after 27 years of captivity. And then when he traveled to the U.S. that summer I went to the Oakland Coliseum to bear witness to the man and the movement that he represented. Many of us in the U.S. were inspired by the 1984 song, Free Nelson Mandela. Right. Free Nelson Mandela. And I got a little black and white handheld TV and took it to my job when I was working as an office assistant at Stanford to watch Mandela's speech to the joint session of Congress. One of the few black people to address Congress. And I still remember him being introduced long before Obama was president, back when Obama was in law school and with the clerk saying in this dignified, respectful fashion, Mr. Speaker nelson mandela receiving a standing ovation and so having come of age in that fashion it certainly caught my attention when i learned that a young black man in wisconsin who was named mandela was running for lieutenant governor in 2018 and as we sit here today with the united states senate that too often refuses to stand for justice and equality because we are held hostage to the conservatism of Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, the Wisconsin Mandela represents one of the best opportunities to free Congress and the country to be more bold and progressive. And he's running for U.S. Senate this year and has a great chance to flip the Senate seat held by Republican Ron Johnson, which would then expand the Democratic majority and reduce the influence of Manchin and Sinema and their dependence upon them. And so I'm delighted that he's taking time out of his busy schedule to join us for today's podcast and. For this conversation, I'm joined as always with my co-host, Charlene Chang, mother of a daughter who I believe is about to graduate from elementary school. How are you and are you looking forward to the graduation? And you want to introduce our guest today.
1: Hi, Steve. I, I am. And I'm also just still kind of bemused and puzzled that there is such thing as an elementary graduation, because as my daughter keeps asking me, did you have a graduation for elementary? I said, no, we didn't have a graduation for anything except high school, because that was actually a Kind of a big deal. Oh,
0: I, then, <laughs> no, I I did though. Maybe it's a mid. Uh, yep. Maybe it's oh, a really? midwestern. Yeah, I remember oh, in sixth okay. grade.
1: Anything you were just done. You're going to middle school. Middle school, you're done. Big thing for high school and college. And I just kept saying, you know, the real thing that the real thing that is an achievement is it's when you graduate from college. But that's like my my immigrant give thinking, your, probably.
0: Give, celebrate the victories as you go along, Shirley. Yes,
1: I know up. this, is, and certainly. For our children today it's that's very much the the new parenting culture <laughs> you to celebrate every step of the way but you know so we are very we're very you know much looking forward to it. it's going to be a joyous day and um, she got herself a, a nice little outfit so it's picked out an outfit so it's this it is a milestone so thank you Great. i am so excited to introduce today's guest mandela barnes is a former state representative from madison wisconsin And the first African American lieutenant governor of Wisconsin. He is only the second Black person elected to a statewide office in Wisconsin. Barnes has been involved in politics since high school. He served as an organizer for the interfaith coalition, Milwaukee Inner City Congregations Allied for Hope. The acronym for that is M I C A H, MICA. He was also the deputy director of strategic engagement for the State Innovative Exchange, a Wisconsin-based national public policy organization. Barnes is running to be the first African-American senator from Wisconsin, and the state primary is steadily approaching, and that will be taking place on August 9th. Welcome, Mandela. So happy to have you here today.
2: Well, thank you so much. Uh, Really excited to have a chance to talk with you all about my background and to talk about the campaign. I uh, do have to add that I'm, I'm actually, I'm from Milwaukee. Milwaukee is my hometown. It's where I was born and raised. It's where I still live today. It's the city that uh, made me who I am. It's given me so many incredible opportunities. Uh, I spent a lot of time in Madison with the Capitol, uh, being here, however, uh, but I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, speak about my Milwaukee roots. And also I'm glad you brought up the whole Nelson Mandela piece, Steve, because That's exactly why my dad named me Mandela. My dad was very active in the UAW. And the UAW was very active in the anti-apartheid movement. And I'll tell you, at the time when I was born, my grandmother was uh, not exactly thrilled with the idea that her only grandchild will be named Mandela because oh, that Nelson Mandela is still in jail at that, at oh, that wow. point. yeah. And uh, She said, uh, oh, you're going to name my only grandchild somebody who's still in jail? Long story short, my dad won the debate at the end.
0: Yeah, well, that's funny. There was, um, well, as Charlene knows, there's, there's a, 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 a sideline of a drinking game every time I mention Jesse Jackson in the podcast. But Jesse does say that he thought about or he wanted to name his son Selma because he was born the same time as Selma to Montgomery March, but huh. that his his wife put the uh kibosh on that on that whole idea. So what was it what was it like growing up with that name if you were a young person in the Midwest?
2: I'll be honest, uh, growing up I didn't really appreciate it as uh much as I, I do now, it's just being younger, having a different name than regular Marks, steves and Tim's of the world mm-hmm. who were who were my class and I guess it was maybe less of me not realizing it, but also just the other students I was around who didn't really understand who Nelson Mandela was, uh, didn't, didn't truly get it. So it took a while for me to actually appreciate my name. I think it didn't really happen until like high school or so. Yeah, no, it's uh,
0: well, as, as I move along the age continuum, and it's fascinating to see what things people do and don't, remember from different time periods, right? Things continue to move on and then different, you know, people move step forward as who dominates the news and whatnot. Um, so you were talking about growing up in you know, Milwaukee and, and, and Wisconsin and whatnot. I'm also you know from the Midwest, from Ohio, and our previous podcast guest, Summer Lee, was running for Congress in Pittsburgh and Summer won her race. We're thrilled about that. Barely won her race. Uh, Very by, thrilled. Yes. Millions of dollars arrayed against her. So there's, a, there's kind of this presumption, though, that to win in the Midwest, you have to distance yourself from issues of people of color, get a you know moderate white person, don't say anything that's going to alarm white people. And yet, Summer won, Garland Gilchrist won statewide, he's the lieutenant governor in in Michigan, was a previous guest on the podcast, and you won statewide office as well as winning your local office. So how did you go about Doing that, what do you what do you attribute your electoral success to in terms of how you approached it and what issues you championed and what kind of coalitions you put together?
2: Honestly, I think it comes down to relatability. You know, this isn't about black or white. It's not even about red or blue, left or right in many of these communities across Wisconsin. It's about top and bottom the people who've been at the top, the people who've been left at the bottom. And we see the same issues manifest themselves in urban and rural areas. And honestly, when I'm in rural communities, I talk about the plight of people in the city of Milwaukee, because I want to make that uh, I want to make the issues connect. I want people to realize that there's so much more that we have in common than we do, especially with people like, or Ron Johnson or other out of touch, ultra wealthy politicians. And another thing on top of it all is when we look at the significant disparities, the challenges we're dealing with in cities like Milwaukee or cities all across the industrial Midwest, uh, the loss of good paying jobs that have been shipped overseas and the impact that it has had. You know, my granddad, he moved to Milwaukee after uh, serving in World War II. He was in the Navy and he was able to get a job as a steelworker. And that's a job he worked for 30 plus years. He retired from that workplace. And those same opportunities to get into the middle class just don't really exist as they did back then. And it has had a tremendous impact negatively on communities and urban centers, but also it's had a resounding impact and, uh rural parts of the state as well. And when I speak about it that way, when I'm able to connect the issues that we're dealing with in Milwaukee to the issues they're experiencing, like the corporate consolidation, the monopolization of uh, farmland and farm and agriculture operations all across Wisconsin, then we start to gain a lot of traction. And the biggest myth that a lot of people assume is that there's this urban rural divide now of course there are going to be some some differences but if you're in any city in any state you travel from neighborhood to neighborhood there are going to be some differences that's just the reality of people but when i travel when i have these conversations it's about having a good school to send their children to it's about having good jobs in the community and not and being able to go to a doctor without having to worry about a surprise bill i mean this is a reality that has been denied to far too many people across this country. And we speak about it in those very uh, explicit terms and how we are so much stronger together and how we won't get anywhere if we continue to go it alone or if we subscribe to this myth that we should be separate from another when it comes to taking on the biggest challenges because there is the out-of-touch Republican politicians that benefit off of our mutual struggles. And that's not okay. Mm-hmm. And I talk about that everywhere I go.
1: Both of your parents were union members. Your mom was a teacher in the Milwaukee public school system. How did those experiences shape your views and your approach to politics?
2: Oh man, I'll tell you. Uh, my parents, my parents' uh, union membership, my parents' middle class jobs—like that—is the Wisconsin story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many people mm-hmm. can relate to it all across Wisconsin. When I when I open up. My conversations with people who uh, may have made assumptions about people who come from Milwaukee, a lot of that is thrown out the door right away when I let them know what my upbringing was like. It's not much different from their own. Now, with my mother being a public school teacher in Milwaukee and me, I graduated from public high school, uh, I had a real sense of what the world was like. And I remember being in the legislature and a lot of the issues that came up sort of, it seemed to have felt new to a lot of my colleagues. Mm-hmm. And for me, I this was a reality that I'd always known. These were things that I always experienced. And in, in, in so many ways, I felt like I wasn't surprised by a whole lot because I'd seen it all before. And that's one of the biggest problems for me is that too many people in elected office, especially at the highest levels, in offices like the U.S. Senate, don't have that dose of reality. They're so disconnected from the actual issues and the actual challenges that people are experiencing. You know, my mother would have stories about, uh, you know, her experiences in classrooms, things she seen with students, uh, you know, having to fill the gap, having to play much more than the role of a teacher, because that's what's going on all over the place. Teachers are having to play uh, social worker. They're having to play school nurse. They're having to supplement uh, even a, a, a dose of parenting in some instances where, You got these students who are living in some very tough situations, high rates of poverty. Uh, We're talking about housing insecurity, food insecurity. And so many of our teachers are left to fill in the gap. And I think about my own time growing up in Milwaukee, having, uh, having things I didn't necessarily realize at that point. But when I got older, it felt like, oh man, it it started to click. Like we'll say, for instance, it will be a lunch and you'll have a friend who's like, Hey man, let me get some of that. Like we're eating the same exact lunch. Why do you need mine? And getting older, it's like, you realize like, oh man, there was actually something a little bit deeper going on there. Things I would have never understood and things they would have never talked about. Also having experienced gun violence in, in high school, I lost my first friend Antoine Ambers. I'll never forget. It It was my freshman year. And He was the first person that, you know, I knew who was uh, who lost his life to gun violence. Mm -hmm. And it was one of those situations where, you know, people say wrong place, wrong time. But it was, you know, the person with the gun who was in the wrong place at the wrong Mm -hmm. time, not him. He was exactly where he should have been. Uh, where anybody should have been free to just, you know, be themselves. And you know, shortly after my sophomore, junior year, there was a there was another guy, uh, Bryce and Pettigrew. He moved to Milwaukee from Memphis. He had a he had some relatives that went to our high school. I'll never forget Taisha. She was a friend of mine. She's the <laughs> she's the date my guy Brandon on the football team. She's a cheerleader. I could, I remember this stuff like it was yesterday because it was seared into my memory. Mm-hmm. And he was shot and killed over a pair of shoes. And like I said, he hadn't lived in Milwaukee for a whole year before that happened. And he was you know, getting ready to play football the next season. He had gotten pretty close. And I, I, I wish none of those instances ever happened. And I wish that those, I, I wish that it, there weren't more, but there were so many more people after that. There was uh, another, there was a guy, Brandon. There was another Antoine. There was Marquise, There was just the list goes on. There's too many people to name. And when we have issues like gun violence that are so topical today, I don't approach this as a political issue by any means or a campaign issue. This is just the reality for me and way too many people in our society. And we have been demanding answers for so long. We have been demanding action for so long. And it's it's heartbreaking that people refuse to act on such a solvable uh, problem in our country.
0: Well, in, in that context, and i wanted to talk a little bit about them what i think that's a great illustration and i think for uh, the importance because a lot of times people just just i think for the audience in general it'd be like they dismiss out of hands like well yeah it'd be good to have people of color in office et cetera,", et cetera you know and but but if they dismiss the significance of how ha- in a society that was founded in racism and has persistent unrelenting racial discrimination and oppression and inequality that manifests itself in these ways, having people who have had the lived experiences of going through that impacts the public policy conversation. And really, it should impact the small d democracy. How much of an imperative is dealing with gun violence is impacted by whether you've lived through it yourself. And I think that that's an important element of this. Um, and so just on, on that point, I'm just interested in ter- curious about in terms of the state legislature, and not even just that, even more broadly think to where we're at in the country today, Right? you know I mentioned mansion up top, and you know he's on the one hand, after these incidents of gun violence, talking about, well, it's terrible, his heart hurts, et cetera. but we can't have an exception to the filibuster for gun control. What's been your experience in terms of the obstacles? to being both in terms of how much of it is the public and how much of it is different politicians in terms of their uh, reluctance to tackle um, gun control issues? It's,
2: it's politicians. It's politicians. The overwhelming majority of people in this country support the bare minimum of universal background checks. This should be a no-brainer. Same thing can be said here in Wisconsin, like over 80%, over well over half of uh, gun owners, even more than half of members of the NRA support universal background checks. But we still don't see any action on the issue. And a part of that, one, is the lived experience. Another part is the money and politics issue. You have a gun lobby with such outsized influence on these legislators. And, you know, the other issue being gerrymandering in a place like Wisconsin, where the will of the people uh, does not uh, become the law of the land, which is the exact opposite of the way things should be. And so there are so many different levels of reform that are needed in this country, money in politics, uh, you know, outlawing, uh, banning, partisan gerrymandering. I mean, these are the steps we need to take in addition to getting rid of the filibuster. Uh, there's so much structurally wrong with our politics, so much that is structurally wrong with our government, that the issues that people support don't even get considered in the very body the U.S. Congress, right. that they should be uh, considering it. But the thing is, we won't change Washington until we change the people we send to Washington. Yeah. And, you know, it is incredibly important to have that diversity of opinion, that diversity of thought, uh, people who can bring uh, real experience The Senate. is so broken because of the fact that it is an out-of-touch institution. The issues that people deal with on a day-to-day basis, the, pe- the issues that people are dealing with in real time, are not the issues that the overwhelming majority of members of the United States Senate ever have to deal with in their lives or ever have had to deal with. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about terms of how one gets to Washington, how one gets to winning statewide offices. And so, again, one of the big struggles that we continue to wrestle with is trying to impact Democratic Strategy and spending to have it minimally be more, you know, based upon data and analysis, but um, ideally really rooted in what does it take to win. And again, there's this common perception that the way you win elections is you run TV ads, you run TV ads with the really lowest common denominator, non-offensive message, and somehow that's supposed to translate to victory. But you're you kind of you know, were a surprise candidate or you know figure to rise to a statewide success um, within Wisconsin. So can you tell us about your 2018 campaign, kind of what issues you ran and how you organized your campaign, how you ran the how you ran the effort?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'll start out by saying in 2018 we were broke. Um, <laughs> right. didn't I did not raise a lot of money at all. Um, and it wasn't for a lack of trying. We, you know, we had about 15 people running for governor at, at that point, but Ah, uh, people were not focused on the race for lieutenant governor, and the worst part too was probably my friends who knew better, who were like, "Oh man, you got this, you got this." I'm like, "Well, I won't if you just take this for granted." Exactly. But one thing we did, you know, we had to drive, right? I wasn't gonna be outworked uh, the same way uh, with this primary now for U.S. Senate. I have some people who dump massive amounts of personal wealth, but I can tell you, I will not be outworked. And the same could be said in 2018, I was running against a fairly wealthy opponent. He put probably, he put two and a half times more money than I raised into the race. And I knew from the start that he'd be able to outspend me, but we wouldn't be out organized, would not be out hustled. And I had a very lean team, and by lean, I mean me and Justin, (laughs) me and one other person. (laughs) Oh my
1: gosh, (laughs) that's lean.
2: (laughs) Uh, And I mean, we had some. uh, We we did have a a lot of volunteers, though. We did have a lot of volunteers who were very helpful, uh, very enthusiastic. You know, and you know, all credit to to them because they certainly helped us uh, get over the hump and fill the gaps and supplemented a lot of the what would have been staff work. And the strategy for us was to go everywhere talk to everybody and as long as we raise enough money for gas we're all right and uh, that's the strategy we're using now we, we have we have you know more resources now it's not as scrappy this go around uh i think about towards the very uh, the final like four, three or four weeks of the campaign for lieutenant governor we uh ended up with about forty thousand dollars that we didn't expect to come in and uh, for the, for us, it's like we hit the jackpot right, <laughs> at that right. moment. And we spent $40,000 on TV mm-hmm. in 2018 in that primary, which yeah, for anybody that knows about ad buys, that gets you essentially nothing. Mm-hmm. But we right. spent it on TV and mm-hmm. um, it did have some impact. A couple people caught it and we were fortunate to to win that race. I ended up winning 71 out of 72 counties in the primary, despite being massively outspent got 68% of the vote, despite being massively outspent. And that's, again, because we, we had a message that resonated with people all across Wisconsin. We talked about the need for opportunity. I talked about my middle-class upbringing, the same things I'm talking about now, because working-class people still are not getting a fair shot. Working-class people are still not getting their voices heard in Congress. People are frustrated. People are upset. Uh, people feel... As if, and rightfully so, people feel as if you know, out of touch. Ultra wealthy people have too much control over their lives, whether it's democracy itself or or the economy. Working people can't get ahead over the course of the pandemic. Billionaire wealth increased an additional trillion and a half dollars, while seven million people in this country found themselves in poverty for the first time. But that working class upbringing gave me the drive to always run like I was two points down. Uh, still feel that way, still run as if we're behind because we are not taking any votes for granted. Any vote we take for granted is a vote that we'll surely lose.
0: Yeah, no, that's, I just want to also lift up for our audience. You were saying it reminded me that I'd forgotten about the dynamics of Stacey Abrams's first race in 2018. And that I haven't they, forgotten. No, I haven't forgotten. I've forgotten this, <laughs> this element of it, believe me. Yeah. I have not forgotten. But it's, there is, and I want to say it. To put this on the record or highlight this for people is that there is a reality and it's a reality that gets overlooked and uncommented on. That is, and I'm just going to say it plainly, that there are wealthy white people in this country who are less qualified, by the way, than the candidates of color who take that personal wealth and try to use it to actually leapfrog the more qualified candidates of color upsetting all these notions around qualification and affirmative action and who has priv- you know benefit et cetera. Et cetera. so right. stacy evans ran against stacy abrams in 2017 2018 put millions of her own money into this race to try to block stacy abrams's ascent to power and the same similar dynamic um is taking place you know in this wisconsin race it wasn't the candidate per se in uh, in summer's case but you know wealthy people were trying to black the and it doesn't get commented on and i think i think that is a reality it's happening in, in democratic politics that we have to start to uh, to call out and i've just done that so
1: yeah I, I love hearing um your story mandela we have you just recently had summer on so there's been a number of guests who have on our show who have similar stories. And it's always a good reminder because I do have friends who are interested in running or even are trying to run now. And they are people of color, the people I know, predominantly women of color. And it does get very demoralizing and daunting for them when they see that, you know, say their opponents are white, white people with more resources. They almost feel like, why should I bother? because it almost seems like, well, you must be out of your mind because look at the math, right? They got more money. They got more money. But I always try to remind them that that's not the full equation, right? That there are so many ways to win and there's evidence of ways in which people have won. So so glad to have your example added to that. I had a quick question. This is you know, kind of something that's been on my mind in, in your 2018 race to become Lieutenant Governor of Wisconsin, you won the primary in a landslide. Again, that was at the age of 30, by the way.
2: Yeah, 31. Yep.
1: Oh, 31. Okay. But oh, still. Oh, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, man, oh, forget man. it. 31. <laughs> yeah, past, yeah. Just yeah, so old. But um, you faced some challenges and, and some of these I just find kind of bizarre. You know, do, I want to let the listeners know during the primary, your name was omitted from three newspaper election notices in different counties, like just omitted. And the day before the election, your picture was used in a local news report about a fatal motorcycle crash that wasn't, you know, wasn't you. So the, the picture was used inaccurately associated with this, this particular news item. What was that like for all those, those kind of things to happen during your election?
2: Yeah, I'll tell you. I honestly forgot all about the omissions. <laughs> sorry, I sorry, to bring it
1: up. <laughs>
2: forgot, forgot all about. Trigger that. warning. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it was. Uh, it was. You know, it was a very stressful time. Like I said, we didn't have money for, for polling, so we had no idea what was going to happen. We know the work that we put in. You know, we we felt pretty good. We knew that you know, we had a, a strong base of support that was, you know, unmatched. But at the same time, we know that. Uh, we hadn't put in the financial resource. We didn't have it as as the opponent in the primary. And then the um, the news story where, you know, the person unfortunately lost his life in a motorcycle accident. That was it felt like a bad omen. Right. Going into right? Uh, Election night. So
1: bizarre. And,
2: and I'm like, oh, man, thank God my mom is not watching this news station right it's now so because sad. she would have freaked would have freaked out see a picture but it was um it was it was a little bit scary to be to be honest just thinking about you know these things that were not happening in our favor even though we had tried our hardest to do everything right and it just made me feel like the deck was even more stacked against me mm-hmm. but uh, you know, we knew what we'd done before, and there was uh, when it when it came to election night. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't, I, I did not have a feeling that we could have done more with what we had. Right, we did everything we possibly could have done. So I was still sort of optimistic, but at the same time, just completely nervous.
0: So you've been, you know, lieutenant governor almost four years now, and so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what ha- what you've been able to accomplished in that role, we, you and I talked before, we talked a little bit about some of the climate change um, initiatives that you, you guys have advanced. So can you share with our uh, listeners what you've been doing um, as the lieutenant governor?
2: Oh yeah, happy to. Serving as lieutenant governor has been the honor of a lifetime. We have been dealt some uh, nearly impossible circumstances. No one could have saw 2020 coming and everything that came with it. And in this office, a lot of people, you know, let's say you do a lot of ribbon cutting as Lieutenant Governor. Now to be honest, we do cut a number of ribbons. We cut our fair share of them, but it doesn't end there. We get to engage small business owners. We get to talk about what they're going through, how we can help or what their successes are. We get to engage with healthcare leaders that are opening up clinics and underserved areas and the list goes on we've been part of a lot of main street revitalization work rural prosperity initiatives uh, funding for our minority chambers of commerce all across the state so that they can help small uh, small minority businesses compete on uneven playing field and it has been also a challenge when we're in situations like the pandemic when we have a legislature that wants to take away authority from the Department of Health Services to be able to do the work they need to keep people safe, healthy, and alive. And at the same time, when so many businesses were faced with struggles, uh, so many communities were offended by, you know, bouts of illness and everything that came along with it. But being able to provide that support to communities is something that has uh, been incredibly rewarding. Uh, people have had some of the most challenging circumstances their entire lives. We do a lot of work as well, you know, on the topic of climate change, because we've had some historic and catastrophic weather events that have taken place. I remember vividly, you know, driving down the side of the road after a series of tornadoes swept through a town and engaging with farmers who are on the side of the road, picking up debris, having to make this tough choice, you know, after having conversation with them, about whether they're gonna rebuild, whether they can afford to rebuild, or whether it even makes sense to, or should they just move on and go somewhere else. Those are the sort of tough conversations uh, we're involved in. And in those conversations, you know, we're not asking people, are you a Democrat or Republican? Uh, we're asking if you need help. And we show back up to deliver on what they what these communities need assistance with. And so working right alongside Governor Evers has been an incredible experience having to weather multiple storms, literally and figuratively, and being able to represent this full state and build relationships in every county uh, has been remarkable. I got to travel to all 72 counties my very first year in office. I've gotten to see so much of what Wisconsin has to offer and gotten to experience so much of what Wisconsin has to offer. Our natural spaces, our food culture here in Wisconsin, and so much more. But I'll tell you, getting rid of scott walker in 2018 is something i can i cannot even truly put into words cannot fully put into words because he is a person that took the state that i love in a completely different direction than we are known to have gone wisconsin was the first state to ratify the 19th amendment giving women the right to vote we we're the first state to declare the fugitive slave act unconstitutional the very first state to have anti-discrimination laws based on sexual orientation on the books, and the first state to have anti-discrimination laws based on ability on the books. We've done incredibly bold and progressive things before, historically, and to see the damage that the former governor caused was the reason I decided to run for lieutenant governor to help kick him out of office, but in office, chairing the governor's task force on climate change, bringing together a variety. stakeholders from different interests, different backgrounds. And I'll tell you, some of the people who are members of the task force have been subject of each other's press releases. We're talking about people who talked around each other, over each other, but not necessarily with each other at the same table. That's something we want to be sure to make happen. And we've been able to uh, roll out a number of uh, suggestions and uh, recommendations from that task force report as well. A lot has come to fruition. Uh, A lot of the work with environmental justice, which we just uh, created the Office of Environmental Justice through executive order. The Office of Sustainability and Clean Energy, which we also created, has finally finalized our state's very first clean power plan. I'm most excited because I've been talking about a lot of these issues in the legislature, even before my time as a legislator, as an organizer, and to finally see these things come to fruition now, especially on criminal justice reform. Now, Wisconsin is a state that unfortunately had the highest uh, rate of black male incarceration. And it's something uh, that we talked about very often and open even during the campaign. And I'll tell you, I have so much respect for Governor Evers for taking on that issue. He was attacked during the campaign in 2018 because they said, oh yeah, Tony Evers wants to cut the prison population in half. And his response was our prison population is too high. And I had never seen that from a Democrat before. Uh, They would have easily walked away and said, Oh, no, 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 we're not trying to do that. We're not, we're not trying to do that. They would have tried to make every excuse, but he stood firm on an issue that was so incredibly important. It's an issue of justice and in communities where it may not impact them personally. I talk about the financial costs. I talk about the fact that the money we're spending on incarceration is money that we can't spend on your schools. And that's why these programs are getting cut. That's why we can't build a new football stadium because we're spending all this money on incarceration and The fact is, at the turn of the 21st century, the state of Wisconsin started to spend more money on the Department of Corrections than the entire UW system with general purpose revenue. And that is a dynamic that our last budget in 2021, the governor's executive budget, sought to change to finally shift our priorities uh, to education over incarceration. Is something that, as we were going through the budget, I'm like, even if it is only one more dollar that we are spending on the UW system, we have to do this. This is something that has been incredibly important, uh, not just to me personally, uh, but this is a statement of values of what we truly represent, what is important to us as a state. And are we going to be uh, concerned about the future and pushing us forward? Are we going to be subject to archaic ways of, uh, uh, of governing? We need to make sure that People who are in prison uh, have uh, treatment alternatives and diversion programs to help them also get either diverted from prison or to help them to be actually rehabilitated while they're inside so that they are less likely to be subject to recidivism. And we also have the uh, lowest prison population we've had in the last 20 years, which is incredibly exciting for me as well. We won't
0: get you into trouble by making you comment on the fact that there are over 100 members of the United States Congress who participated in it, uh supported an insurrection against this country in May maybe there's maybe some room in our prisons for people who participate in our insurrection, but don't say anything about that we'll get you in trouble um so charlene now we're running close to time and i think you're being summoned by your daughter's graduation officials (laughs) so
1: (laughs) i appreciate it but i I mean i could talk all all day and and there's so much you know but um we do you know also know that you're. In a campaign, and your time is precious. So, I wanted to close out with something kind of fun. Have you ever played the game This or That? And what kind of prompted this idea for me and our team is that we saw that you had a very strong opinion on Twitter, which is that you declared that Star Wars is just ultimately, definitively better than Star Trek and a, a uh, certain other public figure uh, Stacey Abrams uh, pushed back and it was, that was really fun to see
0: for our listeners. Mandela tweets this may, you know, may the 4th be with original trilogy fans and original trilogy fans only today. Also reminded to check on your friends who made the wrong choice to prefer Star Trek, Stacey oh. Abrams. You guys need a day too. <laughs> to which Stacey responds. Stacey, who appeared in Star Trek discovery as the president of United earth <laughs> replies, I appreciate your concern. Star Trek fans are good. Enjoy May May 4th. We own the future.
1: <laughs> that was awesome. I loved it. So on that note, Luke Skywalker or Han Solo?
2: Wow. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to be Han Solo.
1: All right. Okay. Cheese curds or beer
2: breads? Cheese curds.
1: All right. For those who don't know, those are... Uh, Wisconsin, uh, like, you know, state foods, right? A like famous. Mm-hmm, staples. Uh, snack, snacks. So staples. I was going to call them snacks, but I guess they are, <laughs> they are actually like on the uh, elevated to the uh, whole category of staples. All right. Uh, and lastly, I was tuning into your video, your wonderful campaign video. And it's obvious that you're an avid runner. And Steve is as well, by the way. So if you had to choose running in like sub sub freezing cold or sweltering heat
2: sub-zero yeah
0: that's, yeah that's the correct runner's answer
2: <laughs> yeah i got out i got out in negative 17 this or this past winter oh, oh
0: wow. i was wondering
1: because i know yeah I can imagine it gets so cold there that is
2: insane it's, it's not fun but the thing is
1: <laughs> i guess not
2: the thing is if, if it's the sweltering heat you need so much water yeah and it is it is difficult like you don't you don't need the, i mean you don't really go that far when it's that cold <laughs> <laughs> you only <need> water anyway, <laughs> but the heat is the heat will just destroy at least me. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: Great. Thanks for playing the game.
0: Yeah, and thanks for joining us, Mandela. I know you got a yeah, but the campaign schedule. But I really appreciate you taking the time to join us on the pod. And so, uh, as, as you leave us, how can people want to be supportive and get involved in the campaign? Where do they go, and how could they pitch in?
2: Absolutely. Please stop by www.mandelabarnes.com. We absolutely need your help.
0: All right. So that's all the time we have for today. It was a great conversation with uh, reminded me actually of um, I used to go vacation in Wisconsin. There was these cars you drove that you could drive into the water. It's all coming back to me now, Wisconsin Dells and these kind of dual vehicles and whatnot. is part of the Wisconsin experience, very Midwestern reality. And it's super exciting that someone like Mandela is, uh, you know, contesting and has a great chance to get the nomination and be, become the senator. So really glad he could join us. And I want to thank all of you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. You can follow Mandela on Twitter at The Other Mandela. We will have a link in our show notes for you to use to donate straight to his campaign. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or subscribing to our newsletter at com. Democracy in Color is also on Instagram. You can follow us at Democracy in Color. If you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio San Francisco. Until next time, keep the faith.